I guess what I would say overall is that what's worrisome is that we're really performing this crazy, complicated experiment at a planetary scale on the only habitable planet that we know. That's Sam Myers, and you're listening to Ending Hunger and Malnutrition. Can it really be done? I'm Sivan Youssef, Senior Program Manager at the International Food Policy Research Institute, IFPRI. On this podcast, we talk to the world's top scientists, policymakers, and practitioners about ending hunger and malnutrition in under a decade. We teamed up with a group of passionate, engaged public health grad students at the University of Michigan. Each episode, one of the students will conduct an interview for us. The planet is heating up, but what does this mean for our world's food? Erica Shaver talks to Sam Myers, senior research scientist at the Harvard School of Public Health and director of the Planetary Health Alliance. Dr. Myers shares his research on the scary consequences of rising levels of carbon dioxide and nutrients in our most important crops like corn, wheat, and soy. It was done in these essentially open field experiments. And so what's cool about them is that you can grow two identical cultivars of the same crop, and the crops inside this ring of carbon dioxide-emitting jets are experiencing elevated CO2 at a very particular prescribed level that you can maintain. So in our case, it was 550 parts per million, which is essentially where the world's expected to be in about 40 or 50 years. And the crops outside the ring, they're being grown at ambient CO2. And in that way, you can isolate the effect of carbon dioxide. And what we found was that there, in fact, were significant reductions in iron and zinc in protein in the C3 uh, grains, which are things like wheat and rice. Um, There were significant reductions in iron and zinc in all the C3 crops, but um, not so much uh, in the legumes like field peas, Um, we didn't see reductions in protein. And so, you know, it was a set of findings that was pretty consistent with what we anticipated. Um, And then, you know, the the next big question is sort of, so what? Like, does that matter in terms of human health and nutrition? And so that's been the series of papers we, we started to work on since then. So in your 2015 Lancet article, you describe your findings as an issue of, quote, social justice, unquote. Uh, You state that wealthier people are associated with higher CO2 emissions, uh, which are putting the poor in harm's way. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you arrived at this conclusion? Sure. I mean, you know, everything in planetary health has that sort of strain running through it of social justice. Um, Fundamentally, what we're seeing is that uh, the consumption patterns of the wealthier people in the world, and um, not just the wealthy countries, but the wealthy people in poor countries as well, are driving a set of environmental changes whose uh, victims tend to be the poor around the world. And we were really struck in the case of that 2015 zinc paper. In fact, I've, I've wanted to write a follow-on paper that just did this analysis in a very focused way. But if you think about 
the premise of that paper. What we're saying is that going from 400 parts per million CO2 to 550 parts per million is going to push roughly 200 million people into new risk of zinc deficiency and exacerbate the existing deficiency in around a billion people. When you think about where that carbon dioxide is going to come from to get from 400 to 550, the people, the individuals who are going to be responsible for those CO2 emissions are almost a mirror image of the people who are going to be vulnerable to those emissions and pushed into zinc deficiency. And so it's, it's the wealthy in North America and Europe and China and India and you know, Mexico and around the world who are emitting most of that carbon dioxide. And it's the poor whose carbon footprints tend to be very, very small who are going to be pushed into deficiency. I want to ask you, what aspect of climate change do you see as the largest threat to human nutrition? Um, one of the things that we're starting to worry about now that's sort of an emerging issue is the fact that uh, significant parts of the world are expected to become simply inconsistent with prolonged physical labor during the hot season because of you know, this combination of temperature and humidity so that it will simply be impossible to thermoregulate, to, to maintain body temperature, um, working outdoors in those conditions. So people won't people won't be able to be outside at certain points in time just because of the heat and humidity? Exactly. And they won't be able to conduct uh, agricultural labor for, you know, more than, than a, a short period without overheating in a way that's actually dangerous to their to their health. Um, we worry about loss of arable land from sea level rise. We worry about more extreme uh, events. So there's a, a host of biophysical changes, um, some of which we can anticipate fairly well and understand very well, many of which we don't understand well and can't anticipate well. Um, and within that sort of complicated nest of changing biophysical conditions, the effect of carbon dioxide on nutrient um, content is you know, one of many impacts. It's one that we've been able to quantify fairly rigorously because in, in many ways it's the simplest. It's a direct relationship of CO2 on crop nutrients. And the papers we've written over the last year and a half suggest that we're likely to see up to 200 million people pushed into new risk of zinc deficiency um, and protein deficiency just as a result of this carbon dioxide effect. Do you see good solutions to this problem that are realistic and sustainable? There are a host of interventions at lots of different scales, from individual behavior change to um, scientific research to um, infrastructure projects like impounding water. I mean, as, as um, we make big changes in the hydrological cycle, um, it may be that if we could actually store water more effectively than things like earlier seasonal runoff of the snowpack and the disconnection between that water and the timing of agriculture could be solved by impounding that water and, and letting it out slowly during the growing season. So there are a whole host of things that we could be doing. The problem is that it's not that clear that we're doing those at the pace that we probably need to be in order to um, really address the challenges that we're facing. I know you just mentioned that there's things that uh, you can do at the individual level. Could you uh, maybe talk about that a little bit for our listeners who might be interested in doing something on the individual level? 
Well, I mean, so this is always the challenge with climate change at, at one level, because the size of the problem and the individual footprint are so mismatched. And so um, you're not, as an individual, going to solve this problem, clearly. And so the first thing I like to say before suggesting any individual behaviors is that when individuals band together and take collective action, they're a whole lot more powerful. And I do think that this is one of those problems that requires a movement, it requires an activated constituency, um, and it requires people coming together. So a series of people making decisions about becoming vegetarian isn't probably going to get us as far as we need to go, whereas a series of people really coming together as a social movement and demanding fundamental change from uh, their politicians and from the food production system itself um, is probably going to be more powerful. I, I, I guess what I would say overall is that what's worrisome is that we're really performing this crazy, complicated experiment at a planetary scale on the only habitable planet that we know. And so if you fundamentally transform the biophysical conditions that underpin just about every aspect of our global food production system, including not just agriculture, but animal husbandry and fisheries, um, you're going to experience a lot of surprises. And our CO2 work is one of those kinds of surprises that would have been really hard to anticipate. But it may be that the things that we're not worrying about right now are even more important than the things that we are starting to focus on. Sam Myers is a senior research scientist at the Harvard School of Public Health and director of the Planetary Health Alliance. Learn more about the work that he's doing at planetaryhealthalliance.org. Erica Shaver is a grad student in the University of Michigan School of Public Health. This podcast is a joint activity of IFPRI's Nourishing Millions Project and the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. You can subscribe to this podcast and learn a lot more about IFPRI by going to the IFPRI website, www.ifpri.org, or the Nourishing Millions website, nourishingmillions.ifpri.info. Today's show was produced by Natalie Lambricht, Erica Shaver, Andrew Jones, Zach Rosen, and me, Sivan Youssef. Zach Rosen edited our interview. Music from today's show comes from the Free Music Archive. Until next time, let's innovate, learn, and speed up progress on ending hunger and malnutrition. <laughs>